Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi. Hey. So I have been thinking and reading and doing a lot of stuff that has caused me to appreciate you so much more all the time. You're such a wonderful door opener. I got some feedback from somebody who listens to this podcast on a regular basis who says just such complimentary things about you. Hmm. And I wanted to put that energy out there about <laughs> what you do. And, That's very sweet. Um, so I, 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 I I want to put something out and for us to talk about it and then talk about sort of where where my head is and what what's the possibility for ordinary life and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I um as, as you and I have probably talked about some of the books that you've recommended and other things I've I've been reading has caused me to get into talking about fear and anxiety and the dark night of the soul and all that stuff that we're in. And I, I think that's really vital for us to talk about, to be yeah. realistic about what is going on. And yet at the same time, I don't want to cause people who either come to hear me or you or us teach or hear this podcast to say, oh, crap, another downer. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah well there's I mean, tension that's a, yeah that's a, that's a dilemma and uh one of the people that i see for counseling recommended me a, not long ago a book called how democracies end mm. hmm. and have you started it oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah so <laughs> it's not your happy book uh-uh. It will not take you to your happy place. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of the chapters that I've just gotten into in the book says that, you know, um, democracies can end through disasters mm-hmm. that are brought on to people, maybe not even of their own doing, but that we're certainly complicit in. And the examples that are in the book may seem a smidgen dated, but I think they're very relevant to us. Mm-hmm. One that he mentioned, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. Oh, how we gosh. bring yeah. disaster on ourselves environmentally. He mentioned the um, atomic holocaust mm-hmm. when we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which were things that the, the the citizens of the United States knew nothing about until it was over. Really? We didn't participate in that. We had no knowledge that the weapons were being de- developed because the Manhattan Project was a big secret. Right. And um, Harry S. Truman made that decision pretty much on his own uh, to drop the bomb. So that's another way with and I think, okay, weapons of mass destruction, AK-47s in the hands of every other person on the planet. And the third thing they said was through um, people who are compliant to dictatorial or authoritarian orders like Adolf Eichmann. Mm. And this guy said, you know, whether you like it or not or realize it or not, Adolf Eichmann's are 
in every society just mm -hmm. waiting to be implemented. Yeah. And I think, oh, okay, there are the people involved in the January 6th insurrection who I'm not focusing on the people who stormed the Capitol. I'm thinking about the people who planned that. That's exactly right. The people right. on the inside, so to speak, who knew of it, enabled it, and even said it, right? So, yeah. so okay, those things are on the table. But what made me think of you with such a you know, deep appreciation is that the thing that this guy in this book, How Democracies In, keeps stressing over and over and over is that democracies cannot succeed when there is humongous inequality among the people in the country. That's exactly right. And we got that. Yeah. And that's kind of your passion. So in the rest it of this is. podcast, Holly Hudley is going to solve the issue of inequality for us. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll see you next week. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so the dilemma is how do we talk about this yeah. in a way that's really effective that causes people not to feel doom and gloom and guilt, right. but to find some ray of hope and possibility that we can move in a different direction? Well, I can sort of say what I'm thinking about a lot, which I'm thinking about this a lot right now because I'm writing through it as we're going through it. Um, one is, you know, you mentioned, oh, I don't want to get up and, and have people sigh and go, oh, another doom and gloom. Being in the dark night of the soul is a process of holding tension between being in it, recognizing it, being enveloped by it, and also holding this possibility, this radical imagination for the way out. If we give in to the dark night of the soul, soul, honestly, we'll die. We'll either die a spiritual death or we'll die an actual death and we'll commit suicide, right? Like if we stay there, we will die. And so the dark night of the soul always needs at least a pinprick of light to kind of hold on to, right? And, and that is the other face of hopelessness is that even in the darkest nights, can we radically imagine a way forward that we can just hold out there that can process through? I also wanna say that like, when we think of the dark night of the soul, so often that's re 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 related to us in terms of an individual isolated journey. Think about the, the, who, you know, the folks who conceived of the hero's journey. It was very often patriarchal, very often male, very often solo, right? But actually, it can be collective. It can be creative. You know, Catherine Keller, one of my favorite theologians, writes about the dark being the most fecund, the most fertile possibilities for newness, right? Where did this mm -hmm. whole entire thing that we're living in emerge from? Darkness. And look at what it created. Look at what darkness created. It created this universe. It created entire universes. It created a planet that can sustain life. You know? So if we can hold that tension between being in it and also knowing that there is, in Plato's allegory of the cave, it says the open mouth of the cave. There is always an open mouth of the cave. Right? So even if we're in it, I think we can also hold possibilities that there is its opposite too. 
And that's probably what spiritual maturity is, is being able to hold the tension of both, the tension of opposites. I'm not suggesting that I'm always good at it. I've been in, I've been pretty low lately, honestly. And it's not been fun, (laughs) but I haven't let go of the possibility that there's light that's on the outside. Yeah. So, um, I will be 85 in September. And I remember when I started this journey and you've heard this a thousand times Mm -hmm. about what motivated me is my own fear of the dark. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that uh, one of the things I've learned is everybody's afraid of the dark. Mm. We're all, I I don't mean afraid of the dark literally, but we're all, everybody that I have encountered when they're really honest, has got something that, Causes them, causes them to tense up and be, oh my God, what? A, how about my grandchildren? I hope they'll be safe. Or how about what's going to happen to my child? That's a big one that, that people have, and particularly as children are on the cusp of high school to college or college to adult life. Oh, you know, there's all that anxiety. So I think we're all afraid. Mm-hmm. And what I'm, what I'm reading about the dark night of the soul, uh, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, which is not his true name. Nobody knows his real name, I don't think. I'll have to go check that. Um, they, they said that, um, that recognizing that we're in the dark night is part of the way out. That's exactly right. Being in reality. Being in mm-hmm. reality. And, and I think that speaks to the second thing you brought up, which is being in reality that there is inequality in this land that we say is democratic. There's inequality. There always has been. That is not blame. I hope no one receives that as guilt. It just is. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we say about the universe formation is that it goes through stages. It's a singularity, then it kind of breaks apart and becomes sort of specified, meaning the different parts become their own thing. And then those different parts become differentiated further. And at some point, those differentiated parts have to come back together to form communion. So that's Mm -hmm. the kind of idea of universe formation. I believe that that's also true in social formation. And if we want to say in a liberal democracy, right? and that, that we, we had to sort of become specified. I think we've been in a massive tension between that specification and differentiation. Identity politics, politics are super important right now. You know, holding on to these things that we perceive to be essential about ourselves, like um, race, class, ethnicity. Um, those are facts about ourselves, but they're not the most essential parts of ourselves but we're in an era when those feel like the most essential parts of ourselves. But I sat with you once in in another different dark night of my soul in a more interpersonal and a more personal dark night of my soul. And you said, you know, Holly, there's something in there that's deeper than what everybody says about you. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the peace that we have to find both in ourselves and in this thing called the collective in this thing called the community. And I don't think that democracy is ever clean. I think that's kind of what we're learning. 
you know, democracy is not clean, it's not neat, it's not ordered, it is grappling with the pluralities of community and the way that it shows up as diverse and the ways that it shows up as complicated. So part of democracy is to be in struggle, to be in struggle, to be in constant grappling, but also imagining what else is possible. I, I was just reading an article, I, I'm I'm trying to fill in some facts in a part of my dissertation around the political division and whether plur pluralism can work. Um, and actually, what people are finding who are doing research on this stuff is not so much that we're that percentage-wise we're more divided or less divided than we have been in, in other past moments. It's that we can't find a common ground. So the, the percentages, the sort of amount of division is not so different. It's the, the breadth of what we're divided about and that we can't find a common ground. We can't agree that it's important to protect each other from a pandemic. We can't agree that it's important to protect those who have been the least of these in our society, including black lives, including migrant lives, including uh, trans lives. You know, We don't have a common ground. And that is what these theorists are saying may be triggering this feeling that we are more divided than ever. And, and to that, to speak to that more pointedly, I read last night that we are not able to find the common ground about protecting our children from being shot by assault weapons. That's exactly And right. what I read was that one of the spokespeople for Second Amendment right said that, sadly, these shootings were part of the freedom that we are guaranteed under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. That's just, to me, horrendous. Yeah. So that's the other aspect of democracy, is that democracy must remain fluid and it must be willing to change. So can we, if, if, if our constitutional protectors are saying, oh, we can't change the constitution. Well, guess what? We already have dozens of times. They're called amendments, right? Right, like, and we're about to change it about women's right to abortion. That's exactly right. So in some way, as, as to go back to that analogy of specification and differentiation, as things specify and become different, there's two tendencies. And, and you've said this about family systems too. We either pull apart or we come together. We either cling to what's familiar or we go toward. So there's kind of three habits of the body moving against, moving away, and moving toward. Mm. Right? So when you say that equality has always been part of the human organization from the beginning of Homo sapiens, that makes me feel sort of hopeless that we can do anything about it. I, you know, I don't know that we'll, I don't think we'll ever get to this moment of like, kumbaya, we all get along. I love you. You love me. I, I just don't know that that's, I don't know that that's what's realistic, but I think that being with our difference is what we need to get better at. You know, union, as Terre de Chardin proposed it, is not harmony. It's about being with our difference in new ways, right? So when we can be with the difference within each other, within our communities, 
within our nations, then we find places where there's actually mutuality. We find places where there's commitment to mutual growth. It doesn't have to look the same. So unity is not sameness, which means it will always have an element of surprise, right? right? But unity is being with our difference in new ways. And I so think- So guess what? Yeah, go ahead. Guess what? What? In, in my rereading and revisiting uh, Teresa of Evola, mm -hmm. by the way, Sherry and I went to Evola and saw mm -hmm where she had her little room. Figuration. Yeah. This is way before people started being more protective of places that tourists went. This is way before 9-11. Mm. So it was really interesting being there. Mm. Um, in revisiting Teresa Vavala and John LaCrosse and the people who have written about them, I'm referring specifically to my experience with Jim Finley and with Gerald May, I have discovered that the secret for dealing with the dark night of the soul is using your turn signal. Well, that's it then. You had the answer the whole time. Just let people know where you're going. Right. All right. No, the, what they say is that the way to deal with the dark night of the soul is by having it. They don't use the phrase daily spiritual practice, right. but they talk about meditation and contemplation. And um, we have a, such a wealth of opportunities to, I, I think about something that Brooke Summers Perry introduced us to, at least me to, about the contemplative tree. You mm, remember that? I do. I think we even, yeah. I think we even put it on the Ordinary Life website. Absolutely. There are did. so yeah. many opportunities to, experience a complete a contemplative way of, of life and living yeah absolutely and that's that's unity and difference right the tree itself is a singularity but it has many many different ways of expressing itself and right. you know this again what happens when we see this change and differentiation happening before us we cling to what is familiar and there are wise voices out there who are not who are saying this too is part of reality you know but it, it and there are things we should be afraid of there are things we should absolutely raise our voices in angry holy hell and and, and complain about people shouldn't have ak-47s they, they just shouldn't right <laughs> We should be angry about that. In fact, we should be a lot angrier than we are. We should be angry about the fact that people are still dying because of their race. You know, those are things that I think deserve our holy rage, if you will. Uh -huh. So acceptance isn't passivity. It's, it's both and. It's saying, this is a giant groaning. This is a giant birthing pain. And where are we going to stand in that space? You know, am I going to rub your feet while you're giving birth? Am I going to like actively be involved? Am I going to stand somewhere between new life and old life and, and be a bridge between the two? You know, I think we all have a place to stand. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've let go of, um, I've let go of any old concepts of God that I have. I wouldn't say totally let go. I still use the word God, but um, I, I don't think God's going to save us. Mm -hmm. This is ours to do, you know? 
For those who might be interested, the title of the book that I'm currently reading is called How Democracy Ends, and it's by David Runciman, R-U-N-C-I-M-A-N. It's a, it's a brief read, I think. It's not mm. difficult to read. Uh, it is, um, it's startling. Mm-hmm. You know, it does say that democracies do end. All, almost all preceding hours has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he has some positive spin to put on what's going on with us right now. But also, as we begin this podcast talking about, uh, through environmental disaster and weaponry, both global and local, and through demagoguery, we can bring ourselves to the edge. Yeah. Yeah. We Have can. a nice day. Yeah. All right, then. Yeah. <laughs> um. I was reading an article about, again, as I said, I've been reading some articles about division and whether pluralism can work. And there's micro examples of it all all over the place. Um, in In one city block, in one city that I can't remember right now, there's a Hindu temple, there's a Zen meditation center, there's a Catholic church, there's a Christian church, and there's a synagogue. And, and instead of each of those, this example was utilized to say on a micro scale, here's how pluralism can look. Instead of each of those entities operating as singularities and not ever sort of coming out, they've, they've started in this community an interfaith um, dialogue group where they come together around common needs and values. So let's say if they all share the same city block and there's a drainage problem, then even in that regard, people from each community come together to resolve the drainage problem and go to the city council together, et cetera. So, you know, that's an example of the way that pluralism can look. And one of the things that, you know, I was saying earlier is that we don't have sort of like a common ground, a common issue, but you know what we do have is we do have shared values. And what are those shared values that we can identify that no matter how different we are, we could come together on. And one of those shared values, I think you've said this before too, is like, we want our kids to be safe. Okay, so how do we all come together around that shared value and, and, and find a way forward? Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy, but it, it is possible to come together around those issues. It just seems like we lack the motivation and the energy to even do that, <laughs> you know? Okay, so being the devil's advocate, you get a group like that together and and, you got a group of 12 and four of them say the way that we protect our kids is by harming teachers and getting more AK-47. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the energies we have to contend with, right? It's not to say, you know, shared values don't mean that anything goes. Universalism doesn't mean anything goes and it's all relative. It means what are our universal values and what are the best, safest, most inclusive ways that we can find to get there? So mm-hmm. that's where the struggle is, right? Okay, you say we need to arm teachers. Well, let's hear from these other eight people, including teachers, what they think, right? And, and that's, the, that's the dialogue process. That's the didactic process. And I think one of the problems is we're not even actually willing to share space with one another right now. Uh, I've had two teachers mm. say to me, actually three, but the two that stand out of my mind was 
uh, one is that um, we can't even, you can't even afford for us to have the right tools to teach our children. And now you're going to give us glocks, mm -hmm. which is pretty ironic. Mm -hmm. And the other one that it said that um, we're not even free to pick what textbooks we use. You trust us to use God? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. It's amazing that even in the darkest of times, people are able to find um, humor as a tool to puncture the inflated. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I love satire does wonderful. You know, the onion, that production, that whole uh, media line is, is really satirical and sometimes over the top satirical, but they manage to find ways to sometimes get us to look at our ridiculousness, you know? <laughs> Um, so I'm not asking you if you want to take this on, but it's an obligation that I feel that in the next few weeks I've got to address. Mm -hmm. Somebody came up to me in Ordinary Life not long ago and said, given the times in which we live, would you please revisit your principle of our having a moral obligation to be happy? Mm -hmm. I think that's the sort of tension the being in the dark cave knowing that there's a light on the outside not succumbing yeah. to hopelessness even when things really seem hopeless yeah. happiness isn't qualified like it has to look a certain way you know happiness can just be i'm low i'm down i'm in the dark night of the soul but i know that there's an open mouth of the cave where light pours in happiness can be I saw I, I saw Thich Nhat Hanh um, respond to a child who asked him in a setting in a large setting the child asked the Thich Nhat Hanh uh, how the ch child should deal with his sadness about the death of his dog and what had happened to his dog mm -hmm. and Thich Nhat Hanh's answer to that was so absolutely beautiful mm. to this small child and he was not uh, denying the child's sadness as a matter of fact he used uh, rain from the clouds as an, an example of the earth weeping mm. and also said that the clouds eventually dissipate and the sun comes out and yeah yeah it's, it's and that's you know, we lost, we just lost two dogs, uh, meaning two of our dogs died. And I've been, I've been amazed at my kids' ability to kind of hold, there were many tears, there was lots of weeping, but they also made these little videos with pictures from over the time, over their lifetime and um, showed them to the whole family. So, you know, and yeah, they made, they were really sweet. And my youngest went around and interviewed everyone and said, what was your favorite thing about Tito? What was your favorite thing about Ali? And so their videos included, um, you know, the things that we loved about our dogs. So while we're watching it, we're laughing and crying in the same moment, you know? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And that may and that be the most profound feeling of happiness that I can think of, that we care yeah. enough about something to both laugh and cry over it. 
I have this dear friend who lives in California. He's been a dear friend for years. Uh, he, he was the first person that I ever consciously knew to be a member of Mensa. Mm. So he's really smart. Mm -hmm. And he's also very funny. And he's now retired, but he did some he complicated cerebral work for a computer platform alone as I think Oracle. Uh -huh. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was in that. Recently, he sent me this this story about the two dogs and a cat that died, and they went, of course, to heaven as all animals do. That those are probably the and, only beings that are in heaven at this point. Right. Just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, the, when a human was kind of iffy about getting in and was questioning God about that. And saying, why do the dogs get in? And God says, because they loved unconditionally. And you didn't. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there was a Doberman, uh, a German shepherd and a cat died and went in front of God. And God interviewed the German shepherd and said, so what do you got to say for yourself? And the German shepherd said, uh, I believe in discipline, training, and loyalty to my master. And God said, come sit on my right hand side. And he interviewed the Doberman and said, um, what about you? And the Doberman said, I believe in the love, care, and protection of my master. And God said, come sit on my left side. And then God looked at the cat and said, well, what about you? And the cat said, I think you're in my chair. That's right. I was, I was like, wait for it. Either the cat's going to knock everyone off the edge of the earth or they're going to, yeah, <laughs> command rule. Do whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, so we didn't solve the problem of inequality. Well, this the solution is in the hands of those of us who are willing to imagine beyond it. It's possible to achieve equality in the layer of systems, policies, and law. That that's that's actually low hanging fruit, right? The words of our laws, in some way, indicate equality. What's harder to change are the psychologies, moralities, and spiritualities of those who enforce the, the laws, the policies, and the systems. You know. So I would like I, I would like to end by telling you a true story. Okay. A half a dozen years ago, I was seeing a couple for counseling, and I saw them over a long period of time. They were both Jewish, liberal, democratic people. He, he was a lawyer. She was a psychiatrist. Uh, and they're both deceased, so I can talk about this, I think. They I can't wait to talk about you after you die. I'm just uh, You can say a lot of stuff about me either way. Uh, when he was alive, he got involved uh, in what is now called the New Orleans, uh, in what's called the Mankind yeah. Project. When I did it, it was called the New Orleans mm -hmm. Training. And uh, one of the things that happens is uh, men who go through this training get in what's called an integration group or an I group, and they meet once a week after that. And in this group, this guy, uh, who is Jewish, as I said, um, there were other men in the group, and there were um, men of the Christian persuasion and the guy of the Muslim persuasion. And this client of mine said that he had this idea of getting those who would be interested to get their spouses and start an inner club. Mm -hmm. 
So they did. So they had a dinner club that consisted of this Jewish couple, two couples that were identified as Christian, and one couple that identified as Muslim. And they met for dinner once a month for like a year and just talked. They just had dinner. That's what they did once a month. They brought food and they shared it. Then one of them had the idea about, we know other people. Let's invite, let's start another table. And they got to a position where the tables that they filled on these, just have dinner together, filled a fellowship hall of a local church. Mm. I think it's quit now because he died and I think the energy of it kind of went away as far as I know. But for probably two, maybe four years, these men and their spouses or their partners, because some of them were gay, met every month just for dinner yeah you know that that's a way yeah it is a way you know there's so much wisdom in that and there in in the native american tradition there was often a community a circle guide right um someone who mm -hmm. guided the circle and, and some native american traditions had community circles every single morning upon waking in which each member of the community brought something to the table in the form of a dream and those dreams were heard. And then there was the sort of thread, what's the community dream? Because what they started to discover is that their dreams began to take on a similar shape, a similar theme. And so then they'd name the community dream. And the, and the edict was, how do we go forth from here and embody the community dream? But what we lack are those kind of people, those initiators to go, I'm gonna gather this community together and we're going to have dinner, and we're going to talk about the community dream, right? That's radical imagination. That's um, that's the beloved community. Is exactly what you just yep. described. Yep. And maybe we're doing it in small ways in our own lives. And I don't know how to make that happen in bigger ways. Maybe we have to be satisfied with the small ways right now. Until the wave catches. <laughs> And we surf off into the horizon, you know, you know. Well, um, I'm going to put that energy into the world and start talking to people about the possibility of doing that. Yeah. I must go. This has Alrighty. been fun and interesting. And um, I know we're, we're co-teaching together on the 26th. And I want you to... Um, kind of be the guiding light there but if you want to talk about no moral obligation to be happy ah you wouldn't say no to that <laughs> i wouldn't say no but i also would i also would absolutely respect your right to say hell no i don't want to do that i'm you not happy do, you, <laughs> no you are i mean but you got yeah. a lot of other no but maybe it's actually about happiness through sadness right like it's it again we'll, we'll we'll discover but that's a that's a possibility to talk about that too. we'll talk about it i gotta go love Alrighty. you love you bye bye, -bye.